Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. In the case of Bolivia too, we had um, Marxist academics um, criticizing Evo Morales for being too authoritarian. And I would appeal to leftists like uh, them to not criticize the Lula, Lula uh, political camp in an extremely excessive manner because Lula has faced imperial attacks and mm. it is not that he is a reformist politician, a truly reformist politician. He is propped up by social movements like the landless workers movement. President. The far-right ruler has a reputation for controversial statements, including his embrace of the military dictatorship that ruled Brazil for 20 years. He's been compared to President Trump for his willingness to steer things up. I would bring back waterboarding, and I'd bring back a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding. Bolsonaro took office in January, after being in Congress since 1991. He's been in the French far right for most of his political career, and was known more for outrageous statements than political achievements. In 2018, Bolsonaro won the presidential elections by vowing to crack down on crime. Since taking office, he's made it easier to own guns. He's given police a green light to respond more violently to suspects. And he's made calls to open up the Amazon to more economic development. Bolsonaro and Trump also share an interest in China, which is Brazil's major trading partner. And that's a problem for the Trump administration. It's trying to curb Chinese influence in the region. But in Bolsonaro, Trump may find a fellow world leader who's just as outspoken as he is. to the MTT podcast, the Marxist Think Tank podcast. Tonight we have with us Yanis uh, Iqbal. Welcome, Yanis. Glad to be with you. Great, great. So, Yanis, um, you are in India. Uh, you'll have to remind me which city you're in, but you're a, a young journalist uh, who's obviously reached out to the MTT to speak to us about uh, Brazil and Brazilian politics. Um, yeah, so thank you so much, Yanis, for, for coming in and, and speaking about that. So, I suppose we can start from, from the top. Um, you wanted to talk about Brazil. You wanted to talk about Bolsonaro. Um, where should we start when we start talking about Brazil and Bolsonaro? We should start from the contemporary reality, which is extremely brutal. And that reality pertains to the COVID-19 pandemic and how it has been cruelly and criminally mismanaged by the Bolsonaro government. So I will um, give a few points about the pandemic response and how it has mingled with the toxicity of neoliberalism 
to generate an unmitigated disaster for millions of Brazilians. So COVID performance index compiled by Loi Institute, it ranks 98 countries handling of the outbreak. And Brazil performed the worst, occupying the last position. Two factors account for this, anti-scientism and uncurbed neoliberalism. Ever since the first infection was diagnosed in February 2020, President Jair Bolsonaro made anti-science remarks throughout the period. And the Bolsonaro government also tried to fudge statistics when the reality did not meet its ideological expectations. And the Ministry of Health uh, has been in turmoil. Uh, there are no credible ministers in that ministry. And since May 2020, Army General Eduardo Pazuelo has held the position of Minister of Health without having experience in the health sector. And infections in uh, Brazil rose with the prevalence of the P1 variant, which is more contagious and more lethal than the normal variant and it affects um, the youth so the new variant first emerged in the amazonas region and the deaths astronomically and naturally increased it was expected uh, but bolsonaro did nothing he allowed the pandemic to run amok while the infection spread like wildfire he remained in a state of delirium he endlessly ranted against lockdowns and curfews and um, there are structural reasons for this, um, and one is the Bolsonaro government's anti-communism. The Bolsonaro-headed political class perceives the pandemic not as a public health issue, but as a biological or psychological weapon created by China to gain competitive advantages in the global market. And this view has resulted in a strategy of herd immunity, ensuring that the free market economy operates smoothly, and the internal enemies linked to international communism are defeated. Mm. And um, there is also the el element of neo-fascism here. Neo what, sorry? Neo-fascism? Neo yes. Sure. Um, because the Bolsonaro government has built its uh, political program on authoritarianism. But to deflect uh, the populace's attention from this, he has tried to portray the pandemic as something authoritarian and he has described curfews as authoritarian. So he even went to the Supreme Court with an injunction to prohibit federal government uh, from deciding on lockdowns and curfews. So this is the ridiculous nature of the Bolsonaro government. It is extremely non-serious about the medical emergency and is hell-bent on promoting its own political influence and hegemony. Now, these are some of the political or ideological uh, superstructures of the pandemic response. There is also an economic base um, to this response, and this is provided by neoliberal policies. Uh, the Bolsonaro government has actively engaged in policies of austerity. It, is, it has chosen to continue an extremely predatory model, which doesn't provide any social benefits to the working class or the indigenous people, which constitute a significant section of the population in Brazil. Uh, it has allocated very low level of resources to combat the pandemic. Spending on this health emergency was negligible and it corresponded to less than 5% of the budget in 2020. And data related to the budget of 2019 show that 
more than 40% of the budget is spent on debt servicing. So here we also have the role of imperialism, how global South countries like Brazil are being financially strangulated. What is needed is not a stooge government like Bolsonaro, which follows the demands of global finance capital. Uh, it needed a leftist government which tried to de-link from the global structures of exploitation, but that did not happen. More than 38 Brazilians work in precarious jobs, uh, and the three-month $120 payment promised by the Bolsonaro administration has proven to be insufficient. Initially, he refused to maintain even this meager emergency aid in 2021 in order to not breach the spending ceiling of the annual budget. And this is an arbitrary rule of the neoliberal order created after the uh, orchestrated overthrow of the Workers' Party government, which was a social democratic or a leftist government. Mm -hmm. Excluding meagerness, 41% of all families living in the favelas, shanty towns, did not even get the aid. So we are talking about the population which is extremely excluded from the entire state apparatus of meager, meager welfare. And these people can't ensure that they have proper sanitary facilities. They do not even have money. And the mm. conditions are like the Palestinians in Gaza who also mm. don't have money for sanitizers. So this is the level of immiseration of the Brazilian population. Mm. And this present day paradigm um, to add is part of a historical context, um, which was mm. brought about after the fall of leftist governments. I see. I see. Okay, nice. Th thank you for that, Iqbal. That was, uh, Yana, sorry, there was a, a very strong, strong opening. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground there. Um, so let's let's just go back a little bit. Um, just mentioned uh, it was 98th in a list. So Brazilian government's response, or Brazil as a whole, was 98th in the list in response to the coronavirus. Just, just remind us, which list was that for? for what was that from? It was the COVID performance index compiled by the Loi Institute. By the which institute? Loi. Loi Institute. Okay, ninety-eight. So, so they were bottom of the list. I mean, just for comparison, do, do, who was ninety-seventh and who was ninety-sixth? Any any idea? No, I don't remember. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. But it's still bottom. I mean, considering that Brazil isn't the poorest economy in the world and is a pretty big country, that is quite diabolical to be on the bottom of the list. You'd expect. Um, you know, perhaps something like uh, Swaziland or uh, a country like that, perhaps to be that low, uh, the lowest actually, or even Somalia, a stateless country almost. Um, okay, so I mean, you mentioned obviously how this was a a perfect combination of uh, neoliberalism as well as anti-science, as well as uh, various factors, and the new variant coming in, anti-communism, and, and throwing in all the political stuff there. Um, what do you think? Um, I, I mean. Is it just the case that uh, his own political objectives, his own political faction, doesn't really care for the poor or for the rest of the country, doesn't really care about the development of the nation, is why they uh, are so low? I mean, uh, yeah, why, why 98th? 98th because of the entire um, governance block which we have today. It's not only about Bolsonaro, it's about the bourgeois of Brazil. It's about what the ruling class wants. Yeah. Bolsonaro's government has been extremely uh, close to the uh, financial oligarchy of Brazil. And it is um, known to everybody in the country 
that the interests and motives of the government lie in the financial sector. So the hegemonic fraction of capital in Brazil is the financial oligarchy for mm-hmm. which they have allocated a lot of money in the budget, disregarding the basic needs of the population. So I think this is structurally caused by capitalism, the ruling class of Brazil, and it is conjuncturally facilitated by the Bolsonaro government. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay. Okay. I mean, um, you know, any, any, um, any economy uh, around the world, uh, even the bourgeois needs laborers. Uh, what is labor that cheap uh, in, in, in Brazil? Is the economy structured in a way that there is such a dispensable part of their labor force? Brazil's economy is structured in an imperialist way, like any other global South country. Um, it has an export-oriented agro-industrialization model. Brazil, um, during the Lula administration, it was an agrarian powerhouse, which at least used the surplus it had accumulated uh, from its agrarian economy for a degree of internal development. But Bolsonaro has renounced this also. He is completely subordinated to the uh, interests of the first world, to the interests of the American empire and the Euro-Atlantic zones. Um, that is why the economic structure of Brazil after the PT administrations, the worker party administrations has worsened. Um, and that is why the ruling class doesn't care for the population because in, unemployment has also increased. And this large reserve army of labor is useful for the ruling class. It depresses wages. So that is why there is a culture of dispensability, as you said, and wretched exploitation. Mm, 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 mm. Okay. Um, so the, uh, the idea or the sort of tone I'm getting, not tone, the um, underlying concept here is that uh, the PT government, so the Workers' Party, uh, the previous government, which was the party of Lula as well as Rousseff, is that correct? Yes, are, correct. Yes, okay. So um, they were in power for, uh, how many years were they in power for? For, for more than 10 years? Uh, from 2002 to 2016. Okay, so in 2016. And after 2016, um, Bolsonaro's party comes in and... Is it, is it correct to say that imperialism, uh, whether it's U.S. imperialism or sort of uh, Western, Western imperialism, um, played a role in overthrowing or putting in place Bolsonaro? Uh, the U.S. State Department uh, was heavily involved in the Operation Car Wash, which was an anti-corruption campaign, an ostensibly anti-corruption campaign initiated against Dilma Rousseff and the Workers' Party. And its purpose was to uh, defame the Workers' Party and break the political hegemony of that organization. Because Lula was about to win another term. It was evident. Election polls showed that. But due to this anti-corruption discourse, Lula was imprisoned. Uh, Dilma Rousseff was impeached. And that is why um, leftists call it a parliamentary coup. Because it was illegitimate. It was based on false allegations. And this entire Lava Jato operation or Operation Car Wash uh, was supported by Western and American powers. So, yes, there was a heavy imperialist hand in this whole affair. Mm, 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 mm. I see. Um, okay. And obviously Bolsonaro was, is famously, has uh, been referred to as being a Trump of, the, um, of, the South, of South America, you know, Trump, Brazil's Trump, basically. 
um, there are lots of things in common. Um, using that analogy that Bolsonaro is the Trump, do we have um, a representative character that pairs up with an equivalent Biden in this case? Is that the, is, does that does that part of the metaphor translate to that that within the ruling class, within the bourgeois, within this neoliberal establishment, that there's the Bolsonaro character, the the dirty, the 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 the, the one who comes in bad form, and then there's the nice one who comes in the nice form, such as Biden. But you know, if you look at the qualitative difference, it's 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 very minor. It's more about form, the presentation rather than the substance. So, is, does that translate here? Is there a, a Biden in Brazil? The Biden Brazil is uh, very marginal. The liberal parties represent the Biden, but they have been extremely ineffectual in garnering support. Uh, some leftists argue that the Workers' Party, since it was too mildly social democratic, since it was too reformist, it represented a Biden, to use uh, contemporary terminology. Uh, but that is a fundamentally misplaced because the social base of the leftist party was composed of workers, peasants, and the ideological insignias used by the uh, party were fundamentally socialist in nature. And sure, um, the Lula administration, the Rousseff administration did, were not radical. They, they had external constraints, but that doesn't mean that they become liberal. So in Brazil, there is no well-formed Biden, but Bolsonaro certainly represents the tropical Trump. So within countries, there may be differing factions of uh, the ruling class and they may be underdeveloped like liberals or developed like the right-wing camp. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. I see. Um, so Bolsonaro is still in power, uh, but as far as I understand, there's lots of unpop... Uh, sorry, there's lots of uh, unhappiness in the country with this. There's a lot of protests, a lot of political action against him right now. Is that correct? Yes, it's correct. Okay, and and I mean, to what extent do you think does it compare with stuff that's been happening in Colombia recently, or is it uh, less 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 uh, less uh, powerful, or less influential? Um, Brazil has been experiencing a lot of turmoil, and I think it is comparable to Colombia. Opinion polls suggest that. Um, Lula is the best placed politician to challenge Bolsonaro in the 2022 elections. And at the same time, Bolsonaro is fast losing his appeal among the electorate. His disapproval rating hit a new high at 54%. That's a lot. And Bolsonaro's approval rating has been hovering around 30%. He's no longer concerned with governing. His sole focus is avoiding impeachment and making it to 2022 with at least some chance of making it to the second round of the presidential elections. And all these uh, results are the contradictions of the Brazilian political class, the current ruling political class, which has accumulated so many inconsistencies that it is not able to sustain its rule. I see. So it sounds like um, Bolsonaro has a very difficult job for, if it's 2022, sorry, is that what you said, the election next year? Yes, 2022. So at the moment, a 34% approval rating and, and Lula is at 54%. But let's just, just go back for a moment here. So Lula was in prison for how long? Um, Lula was imprisoned in 2018 and he was released on March 8, 2021. And what, what did he go into jail for? And um, if he, if it, and I assume that uh, he's been released now, 
So the logic that follows from that is that uh, the charges were not correct or not accurate or were false charges or it's been repealed. Is that correct? Uh, yes. And the reasons why Lula was imprisoned are related to Operation Car Wash. Uh, hmm. He was imprisoned in April 2018 um, due to the allegations of corruption and from the beginning it was evident that Lula's imprisonment was part of lawfare, the politicization of law um, for the ambitions of certain groups and in 2018 the Supreme Court after receiving a threat, an overt threat from Brazilian General Eduardo Villas ruled that defendants could be jailed even before their appeals had been exhausted. So this was an illegal interpretation of Brazilian law. And this judgment allowed Judge uh, Sergio Moro, an important figure in this entire affair, to arrest Lula at a time when he was leading the polls. Mm -hmm. And uh, the weaknesses of the case against Lula were widely denounced, even by the UN. The lack of evidence, the lack of right of defense, the illegal confinement of witnesses, the accusation of crimes that did not even exist in the criminal code, and the abuse of process and bias against the defendant. And in 2018 itself, the United Nations Human Rights Committee requested that Brazil's government not prevent Lula from standing for election in 2018 until his appeals had been exhausted. So from the beginning, it was evident that this uh, whole affair was um, covered in illegality. And with Lula's release, even judges have confirmed this bias. They have publicly said that the allegations were false and the bias was openly confirmed when um, Judge Sergio Moro joined the Bolsonaro government. So the closely knit character of the uh, political groups and the judiciary was exposed at that time. And with mm. Lula's release, the whole operation car wash has been busted. It has been uh, proven that it is false. Mm. Mm -hmm. So just to clarify um, that I understood that, um, the UN, uh, obviously, a body of the UN declared that uh, this was not a justified or, or um, fair trial. This was um, uh, imbalanced, impartial or something like that. And of course, this implicates the judiciary of the country. Yes. Okay. Okay. So it looks like we said, Bolsonaro has a 34% approval rating now. The election is next year and Lula has 54%. So I suppose we could say that this would, if Lula wins, and if we consider recent events in, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, is it Uruguay or Paraguay, but this would be another, well, no, no, sorry, it's in Chile as well as other countries in South America, we've seen a recent tide of elections of, of leftist or um, I suppose leftist to give us the broadest term uh, leaders coming to power with with uh, Bolivia, uh, Morales coming back after the coup, and Chile also having the the, the Castillo, I believe is his name, uh, as well as other countries. And so that, that if we took Brazil, it would only leave Chile, uh, sorry, um, Argentina, and perhaps one or two other countries, uh, Colombia, that didn't have a leftist government in South America. Um, um, Argentina also has a leftist government, um, Peronist government, as it is regionally known in the country sure. and um, in Chile uh, there will be a presidential election it happened already and the potential winner uh, is Daniel Jadwe uh, the communist party of uh, Chile uh, Chile and uh, in Colombia there is 
a possibility that a social democratic leader can come to power and in peru we already have a leftist president pedro castillo, castillo. Uh, after yes. after a lot of coup mongering efforts he was finally elected a few days before so brazil will join that pink tide uh, pink because it is not overtly red uh, it is right. not communist it's social That's democratic right. sure and many have said that the pink tide was extinguished um, you know mm. with the uh, overthrow of uh, evo morales and the supposed uh, reformism of the leftist governments many said that the pink tide was receding it was mm-hmm. consumed by its own contradictions but i want to clarify that that is a false conception because the pink tide never uh, weakened due to its own internal contradictions there were contradictions but it wasn't weakened due to these elements it was weakened due to external imperialist interference and that is why in bolivia we have seen that support for leftist party leftist party mas movement towards socialism survived unlike many european academics who chastise these leftist governments for being reformists and brazil will show that too uh, eurocentric academics argue that uh, the reformism of leftist governments makes them incapable of sustaining power but as has been evident till now lula still enjoys popular support and his election will prove that the pink tide never receded it was it just it was just suppressed by imperialist powers mm. you mentioned that there were some internal contradictions within the pink tide what are the internal contradictions within the pink tide the internal contradictions relate to the leftist government's dependence on primary commodity exports uh, at that time there was a commodity boom which allowed these governments to accumulate um, large trade surpluses and use these for internal social welfareist policies and these policies were more radical in ecuador and in venezuela in ecuador we had uh, rafael correa and in venezuela we had hugo chavez and now nicolas maduro so these uh, governments had a dependence on primary commodities but let's say uh, this was a contradiction to the extent um, that the time frame was very less because you can't shift from primary commodities to internal industrialization in a very short period you need much more time span for these changes so it was a contradiction when con- considered temporarily in the context of time and mm-hmm. in venezuela government tried to diversify its productive structures but it did not materialize due to the actions of the bourgeois which used an overvalued currency for uh, unproductive means and all these destabilizing actions have been happening in other pink tide countries as well so these are the internal contradictions in which the shift from primary commodity economy was mm-hmm. uh, made difficult due to the actions of the ruling class or due to imperial structures okay i see i see okay so it's a it's a contradiction in terms of trying to shift from primary commodity production into industrialization and not factoring in time in that and obviously not also having having other contradictions so having a bourgeois that is not want to necessarily uh, make that move um okay uh, why, why would 
uh, is it merely the fact that the bourgeois in those countries where the pink tides contradiction was present, is it merely the fact that the bourgeois have a vested interest in the Algerian um, primary commodity export, that they aren't invested in industrialized industry? The fact is that uh, the bourgeois doesn't want that the global south countries develop from their subordinated status to a dealing status, as the Egyptian economist Samir Amin called it. If uh, pink tide countries dealing from the global economy, the peripheral bourgeois of these countries would inevitably be suppressed because now a leftist alliance will lead a global south country in an independent process of development. And this will ensure that the capitalist class is politically marginalized and slowly economically also. Um, now, in these conditions of dependency, when global south countries are tied to the global north, the peripheral bourgeois benefits from the uh, benevolence or let's say from mm -hmm. its linkages with global mm -hmm. north bourgeois. Because the global north relies on the global south bourgeois as a local stooge, as someone which can enforce the rules of global capitalism. But once global south countries delink from imperialist structures, the peripheral bourgeois will be left with no other option than to join the process of development and uh, lose its power. So that is why the ruling class hates the pink tide governments and is not willing to participate in its programs. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, the pink tide though uh, is winning, it seems. And uh, if, if we make it a prediction, it seems that Lula would win in 2022. Is that a correct prediction? You, uh, is that your prediction? Yes. Okay. And so that would mean that, yes, the pink tide is back and, and it's also bigger than it's possibly been ever, um, arguably. Uh, what What's going to change in South America then with a dominant pink tide across the continent? Um, I don't think it will be bigger than before mainly because of the fact that uh, commodity boom has ended and in many countries like Ecuador, a leftist government was about to be elected in 2020, I believe, but it was thwarted due to the divisions within the domestic left and it was planted synthetically by uh, American organizations. So in Ecuador, for example, there emerged a divide between the indigenous left and the non-indigenous left. Um, so mm -hmm. the successor of Korea, uh, Rafael Korea, he mm -hmm. tried to mobilize the entire Ecuadorian society on a general line of socialism. But due to the uh, synthetic divisions uh, produced within the left, the indigenous uh, sector of that political camp dissociated itself from the Korea camp. And that is why uh, the left in Ecuador couldn't win the elections and now we have a right-wing uh, banker who is intent on decimating Ecuador. So, in Brazil, uh, there is a clear possibility, but in other countries, I cannot say conclusively that the pink tide will be more bigger than before. And more importantly, the center of the pink tide, Venezuela, it has been having a hard time due to the sanctions regime because the USA sanctions against Venezuela have destroyed its productive base, disallowed it from trading with other countries. Um, and this has led to a bit of discontentment with the Maduro government. Uh, and Maduro government is trying its best to uh, stabilize the communes or the communal democracy which Venezuela built. 
from 1999 but it is being thwarted by usa and there is a lackey called guido there who is trying to appropriate power so these indicate that the pink tide will have to survive in harsh circumstances uh, because the bolivarian project is weakened and cuba itself um, it is also being weakened as we have seen in the recent days uh, due to the american blockade it is uh, witnessing protests and internal instability will not allow it to contribute significantly to the pink tide so mm-hmm. due to these factors i think the pink tide will be uneven but it will be an attempt at the regrouping of the left that is for sure mm-hmm. okay but it seems to me that you've just mentioned how the, the pink tide obviously apart from being uh, an enemy of the imperialist uh, sort of US imperialism effectively more specific because of the, the Monroe doctrine um even though we have uh, Brazil joining the pink tide again uh, even though Argentina has its sort of soft soft pink or li- lighter pink peronist government Chile and Peru with potential sort of leftist pink governments coming in Venezuela still fraught with problems uh, Colombia though on the other side not a government but in deep trouble but even with that even with brazil coming in and things improving in in the in in, in peru and chile and bolivia too um you you mentioned that it doesn't seem that the pink tide is still strong or, or as back as big as it was um and particularly you mentioned ecuador there so a lack of agreement indigenous left and a sort of metropolitan or urban left almost a, a peasant and uh, and uh, you know proletariat split so um why aren't pink tide leaders able to you know unite those interests and unite the, the different classes in their countries um in ecuador the problem was related to external ideological interventions i am not saying that the divisions within the left were did not have a domestic base they did have a domestic base but they were majorly influenced by um external ideological campaigns um because uh the korea government too did a lot for indigenous people but some of its project of commodity extraction uh did lead to discontentment within the indigenous people uh but this was a part of the domestic uh, productivity enhancing campaign and it was partially necessary um because you need resources to develop the economy but it should be done in a way that indigenous people's interests are not compromised so there was no exploitation of indigenous people under the korea government but there was a kind of disagreement um so external actors capitalized on these disagreements and they promoted uh, sectors which while speaking the language of indigenism uh, promoted the interests of the us uh, because the main indigenous actor in ecuador he was closely aligned with the us he uh, extolled the virtues of usa's regime change campaign against venezuela and denounced cuba and in general he aligned himself with imperialism so there has been the constant efforts of imperialism and there have also been the internal contradictions of uh, productivity enhancing programs so these um, come together to create rifts within the pink tide movement hmm. i see i see i see okay okay um bolsonaro also has you know is not 
a fan of indigenous people, to put it lightly. You've, you've expressed it as a war against indigenous people. So, um, in, in what ways has he been doing that? Bolsonaro's war literally is a war because it involves the modern-day extermination of indigenous people. Uh, in August 2020, the Brazilian Supreme Court ordered Bolsonaro to institute at least some measures uh, for the protection of indigenous people. And it, this ruling was the legal recognition of the totally disastrous anti-indigenous policies of the Bolsonaro government. Indigenous Brazilians are dying at a higher rate than the general population. And it is estimated that they die of the virus twice as often as the non-indigenous people. Some communities are on the verge of extermination due to coronavirus. So here's the element of war, the element of genocide in Bolsonaro's uh, behavior towards indigenous people. And the coronavirus crisis has been used by the ruling apparatus to push a rapacious agenda of mining and extractive capitalism. Uh, consultations with indigenous people and also environmental impact assessments have been abruptly halted in order to force through mega projects related to agribusiness, mining, dams and uh, infrastructure. And under Bolsonaro's administration, applications to mine on indigenous lands in Amazon have increased astronomically. Uh, and this has ensured that indigenous people are continually displaced from their territories, that they are precarized um, endlessly. And mining magnates in Brazil have found a close ally in Bolsonaro because he covers this um, agenda of capitalism in an anti-indigenous xenophobic discourse, which legitimizes uh, these mining operations. Let's also talk about the urban indigenous population. It is not discussed much. Uh, we mainly talk about the indigenous people living in the uh, non-urban areas and the Amazons, yes. Uh, but the urban indigenous population, which constitutes half of the indigenous population, it has been suffering a similar fate as of its counterparts in remote regions. This urban population serves as a reserve army of labor for capitalism and consequently experiences high levels of inequalities in the form of informal employment and gender pay gap. Uh, for example, the rate of informal employment for informal employment for indigenous people is higher than the non-indigenous population and the hourly earnings of indigenous women are less than the non-indigenous. Uh, so Bolsonaro did not provide uh, this sector with any social safety measures and they have been uh, left to themselves to fend for themselves without any state support. I see. Okay. So, so yeah, so in, in many different ways, a war. A war involves, uh, you know, negligence, almost death by negligence, and other ways more direct. Okay. Um, what kind of policies do you think Lula will be able to implement uh, in 2022, if he, once he wins, let's say he does, what kind of things will change and what will we see in Brazil? Lula would try to bring back the social democratic elements of the previous PT administrations. And most importantly, he will try to strengthen Brazil's unified health system, which was created in 1990 and which is being weakened by the Bolsonaro government. And most Brazilian governments had followed the World, World Bank's recommendations and Bolsonaro is doing the same. Uh, mm. He is trying to deregulate the market 
the health market he is privatizing health infrastructure he is uh, not giving any social safety measures to the workers or the indigenous people one major blow to the unified health system was the constitutional amendment 95 and mm-hmm. which would surely be repealed by the lula administration and this amendment was uh, implemented during the tenure of michel temer who uh, headed an interim government after the fall of dilma rousseff and mm-hmm. let's remember that he had an all white men cabinet in which there wasn't a single woman initiated a witch hunt against a patriarchal witch hunt against rousseff um and so coming back to lula um, he would um, revoke this amendment uh, because it restricts spending to certain ceilings disregarding the needs of the population the impact of population growth and demographic changes and the effects of technology external emergencies etc and lula will try to develop a new fiscal regime where social spending is not decoupled from any revenue growth which as has been happening now the revenue growth doesn't feed the government's social policies but lula would end this disconnect um because in today's situation even if the federal revenue increases there would be no more investments in social areas and where does this all revenue go it is spent in enriching the decadent capitalists and making life even difficult for the proletariat lula would end in this and this will be a major action of the government and in general we can say that he would lead a compassionate government which listens to the needs of the people i see i see okay okay um something that i think i've just noticed which might be of interest is that of course bolsonaro has been described as we mentioned earlier as the trump of the tropics as you as you called it um and but at the same time also neo fascism has been used to describe him and also neoliberalism has been used to describe him um now something obviously that trump is not a neoliberal you know uh listening to the world bank and imposing conditionality uh based on on world bank loans uh, which is neoliberalism you know a privatization of certain sections opening of trade um you know not uh not nationalizing things not using protectionism the sort of classic neoliberal policies of the developing world that were given to them by the world bank and by the imf so um bolsonaro has been implementing those policies neoliberal policies so in that way he contrasts with trump he's not like trump in that sense but at the same time he he does have this neo fascist element so i suppose that's the difference between the trump between trump and bolsonaro would you say there's any other major differences between the two uh there are no major differences uh, and i would also argue that uh, they also converge economically because trump also pursued a policy of deregulation and uh, trumpism was basically um i will call it neoliberalism on steroids because uh, it did not do anything for the american working class and it in fact intensified the financialization of the american economy uh, directing resources and social wealth away from uh, welfare spending into uh, decadent capitalism so mm-hmm. economically and ideologically also both bolsonaro and trump converge and the only difference is their geographical context which determines the specific form their policies would take the substance mm-hmm. would be the same but form would be different mm-hmm. and what about trade there's obviously i agree with that description that they matched on domestic neoliberalism um but what about in terms of trade i mean 
famous, Trump is famous for his, his protectionism, his, his trade war. Um, and neoliberalism has always been about, is not about protectionism. So has Bolsonaro been protectionist in the same way or in a similar way as the Trump has been? Bolsonaro has not been protectionist. In, in fact, he has driven an agenda of um, trade liberalization, which opens the economy to rapacious multinational corporations. And it is antithetical to any decent agenda of reform, which protects the economy uh, from uh, the influence of imperialist capital. And of course, in the case of Trump, um, it was different. Protectionism did not result in any benefits for the American population. And the trade war was more focused on a new Cold War against China, um, which I, I perceive as developing an alternative to the global capitalist order. Yeah. So on that one, actually, uh, since we're, we're already, I mean, I know that we probably shouldn't put the lens of Trump and only put on American glasses to look at the world and, and only compare things to, to Trump. But obviously on China, what was, um, what has been Bolsonaro's position on China? Has he been as bullish or aggressive against China as, um, as Trump was? And particularly, obviously, I once went to a, a stadium and saw Dilma Rousseff on the stage with a Russian individual leader, with an Indian leader, with a Chinese leader, once a part of BRICS, um, the B standing for Brazil. What has Bolsonaro done with China, and then by extension BRICS? What has happened to that under his, his leadership? Bolsonaro has uh, driven a hostile ideological agenda against China. As, as I've already said before, hmm. uh, his uh, sinophobic rhetoric has been a part and parcel of even his pandemic response. So. His external orientations against China are even being reflected in his internal policies. So that is the measure of sinophobia and uh, anti-China rhetoric within the Bolsonaro government. And in this dimension, Bolsonaro has aligned himself completely with the uh, Trump, former Trump administration in that both of them uh, spoke about China as being um, imperialist, as being expansionist, as... Uh, spreading a communist disease. Um, and talking about BRICS, uh, Bolsonaro has weakened uh, regionalism. Um, while BRICS never was a third world project in the sense it was employed in 1960s, where there was a social element within regionalism, uh, BRICS at least tried to upend the influence of global north in terms of finance. Uh, mm. The BRICS bank, if I remember correctly, it, it was touted as a powerful threat to the financial hegemony of the global north. But mm -hmm. Bolsonaro has uh, not uh, involved himself in these regional agendas. This is natural. He is more concerned with aligning himself with northern capital and with uh, closely uh, following the policies of the comprador bourgeois, which mm -hmm. is a parasitical class totally dependent on US and European imperialism and doesn't care about what the domestic population is doing. Mm -hmm. Okay, yes. So, <laughs> again, I know we've said we don't, we don't want to use this reference too much, the, the, the American glasses to look at everything, but if Bolsonaro is such a similar character, and particularly if Bolsonaro is going to be going out in 2022 in the election, um, what do you think the result... What, what, 
What do you think might happen? Would you, are we going to see something similar to the January 6th moment in the U.S.? Are Bolsonaro's supporters, uh, are they that militant? I've seen some protests, I've seen some um, you know, contests, some, some fights in the streets. However, you know, is there enough of the working class that supports Bolsonaro for them to have such a presence that might lead to a, you know, such an exchange that we saw on January 6th in, in, in America? Yes, it, uh, it can be similar because Bolsonaro has threatened to disregard the results of the 2022 elections and he said we are going to have problems which was an allusion to the upcoming events but these uh, social reserves of Bolsonaro's support have dried up and grassroots mobilization for uh, this kind of action won't be sustainable um, because in USA a significant section of the population supported Trump as was evident in the electoral results. But in um, Brazil, Bolsonaro has um, lost uh, the support of the majority of the population. And he may rely upon the administrative apparatus to enforce his desired aims. Because he recently reshuffled the military to eliminate all uh, dissidents uh, from this apparatus. And this rejigging was... Say that again, sorry. You recently did what? He reshuffled his military to eliminate all dissidents who did not agree, who did not either agree with Bolsonaro's pandemic policies or had concerns for his politicization of the military itself. So this uh, reshuffle of the military indicated that Bolsonaro was trying to um, knit a tight group within the administration, which could mobilize behind him whenever the need comes. So that may be the possible scenario. Mm. So it might actually, if you're mentioning the military there, that he's shuffled, the, he's, going to, he's reshuffled the, 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 the sort of generals and the military staff, which makes it sound more like it could turn out like a Bolivia scenario, the Bolivian coup that we saw uh, recently. Um, yes, uh, because in Bolivia also, the military gave orders to Morales to leave the country. Um, so the military in Brazil may also prove consequential to the extent that Bolsonaro has been weaving intimate links with this uh, body. Mm, mm, mm. So, I mean, on, on, on balance then, it seems like South America is really um, a real hotbed for American foreign policy or imperialist policy, I should say, because if we consider Bolivia and the U.S. involvement there, if we consider uh, Brazil and this Operation Car Wash that you just mentioned, as well as Venezuela and Cuba, uh, all of the actions going on there. So it seems like the U.S. is having a tough time managing South America. Yes, uh, it will inevitably have a tough time. As you expand your empire, you have to encounter the resistance of the population which don't like informal or formal occupation. So that's an inevitable tendency of any empire. And the American empire is too witnessing these outbursts of anger as it tries to extend and strengthen its tentacles within the countries it has informally colonized. Mm-hmm. Brilliant stuff, Yanis. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to what you have. Very inform- uh, very informative, full of information, full of details, uh, and very, very quick. Uh, great stuff. So, I mean, do you have any sort of final comments on, on the situation here? So, obviously, we've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about South American politics in general, Bolsonaro in particular, the makeup of his support, the makeup of his uh, policies, uh, his differences to Trump, many, many things. So 
do you have any final thoughts or comments on this topic that we might have missed? Um, no, there are no specific comments, but I will. I would like to make a message, um, and it is extremely important. I believe politically important because in the global north we have seen a tendency among European and American Marxists or leftists to disregard the uh, context of leftist governments in Latin America. So. In the case of Bolivia too, we had um, Marxist academics um, criticizing Evo Morales for being too authoritarian. And I would appeal to leftists like uh, them to not criticize the Lula Lula, uh, political camp in an extremely excessive manner because Lula has faced imperial attacks. And Mm. it's not that he is a reformist politician, a truly reformist politician. He is propped up by social movements like the landless workers movement. Uh, mm-hmm. When the landless workers movement is um, trying to gain support for Lula, um, these Marxists and leftists too should mobilize opinion within their own countries for the re-election of the workers party. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think yes. A, a good reminder to particularly Western leftists that anti-imperialism is a very important position in the struggle against uh, imperialism and capitalism. And uh, yeah, we do not, do not end up serving the interests of imperialism by undermining a uh, quote-unquote unperfect candidate in your eyes, um, the classic uh, Trotskyist behavior, but uh, <laughs> without getting into that. Um, okay, I, I, one more question for, for yourself then, Yanis, uh, before, before we end. Um, we've talked about Trump, we've talked about Bolsonaro, and these two characters are generally described as, you know, right-wing um, many words to describe them but you are in india and of course you have uh, narendra modi there if you could give us a brief answer to the question of how similar or different is narendra modi and his sort of modus operandi to bolsonaro and to trump similar or not similar at all narendra modi is uh, formally similar to bolsonaro and trump but um, he has strengthened his repressive powers to a great extent um, he is brazenly murdering dissidents Stan Swamy, an old um, liberation theologist, he assisted social movements and recently he um, died in custody. He was incarcerated illegally and he died. So that's the level of brutality the Modi regime has reached. And it is on a new level or an advanced stage of uh, neo-fascism because it in 2020 it tried to push a bill which would result in the disenfranchisement of the Muslim population. And I participated in the protest against this bill. And let's say that the repression was enormous. Um, Everybody was being arrested and a culture of fear was being created. So Modi differs from Bolsonaro and Trump um, in the extent to which um, the repressive culture has developed. See, okay. So I think perhaps, Janice, it would be great to have you on in the future to speak about Narendra Modi and the specifics of Indian politics too. Uh, I assume that you are <laughs> well informed on that too. So um, thank you so much for coming in tonight, Yanis. It's been it's been great speaking to you. Thank you. I also enjoyed the discussion. So um, yeah, uh, Yanis, where can we find your work and uh, your writings and stuff? Uh, you can find my uh, articles on the Makrak profile or on uh, Eurasia Review, for which I write regularly. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Yanis.
And that is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.